Well, this morning we come to the final letter dictated by Jesus that John recorded and sent to the seven specific churches that existed in the latter half of the first century. And this final letter is written to the church at Laodicea. And as you could tell from our reading, Jesus has absolutely no words of praise for this church. In fact, the church makes him sick. And he tells them because they're lukewarm spirituality that he will spit them out of his mouth. We can summarize by saying the church at Laodicea was a deluded church. They had a complete lack of self-awareness. They had convinced themselves that they were something When in reality, Jesus says, you're nothing. John Stott wrote, perhaps none of the seven letters is more appropriate to the church in the 21st century than this. It describes visibly the respectable, skin-deep religiosity which is so widespread among us today. And in light of these words, not just the words of John Stott, but in light of the words of Jesus, we would do well to pay close attention to what he has to say. Well, as always, we'll begin with the Lord's self-description of himself. And so to this self-deluded church, he identifies himself as the amen, the faithful and true witness. As one commentator pointed out, the terms faithful and true are both translations of the same Hebrew expression, amen. So what do we have here? We have a threefold description of Jesus as the truth. Fix that in your mind. Jesus describes himself to this self-deluded church as truth, and he repeats it three times. So you see what's happening here? Do you see what Jesus immediately communicates to the church who thought they were something when in reality they were nothing? He's pointing out to them that they have a false view of themselves. And so Jesus comes as the truth and he shines a spotlight on the reality of their true spiritual condition. I cannot overemphasize enough to you to pay attention to what Jesus is saying here. There are only three conditions outlined in this passage and only one of them are acceptable to Christ. This is not a passage that you can say, well, I'll take it or leave it. Or this is for somebody else. No, this passage is for you. It's for me. It's as if Jesus is saying to them, you think you know the truth, but you don't. Now listen, listen. Are you a person who thinks they know the truth, but you don't in reality? Say, how would I know? Well, hopefully the Spirit of God will enlighten you, amen? Don't, listen, don't automatically assume that you've got it all figured out. I have to tell you, this has been one of the most, this has been without a doubt, the most convicting message I've prepared from these seven churches, without a doubt. Sometimes the truth is harsh, and it's hard to hear, isn't it? 
But sometimes the kindest act that we can perform on behalf of another is to tell them the truth. So Jesus has harsh words for this church. There's no doubt about it. But that harshness is tempered by his love. He demonstrates his love for them in that he has a desire for them to be renewed in fellowship and communion with him. So he identifies himself as the amen, as the faithful and true witness. And in this statement by Jesus, we have really the theme of the passage. We don't have to go any farther to try and figure out what Jesus is saying here. In verse 14, Jesus describes himself to the believers at Laodicea and to us in most vivid terms, and he does it in such a way that immediately we know what he wants us to get out of the passage. In his self-description, he reveals his desire for all those who profess faith in Christ. In his self-description, he immediately lets us know, if you claim to follow me, if you claim to be a Christian, this is what I expect of you. And what was it? What was it the Lord's desire for his disciple? The Lord's desire for his disciples is to be like him. And that's, that's the point of this passage. And that's part of why we're saved. Paul wrote to the believers at Rome, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Listen, we are saved to be like Jesus. And part of, you know, you know preachers are good to say, well, you're saved to be like Jesus. And they never really say, well, what does that mean? Well, right here in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, we have a very distinct part of what it means to be like Jesus. Jesus does not keep us in the dark. He tells us exactly what we are to be if we claim to follow Christ. Well, how does Jesus describe himself here? He describes himself as a true and faithful witness. And that is what Jesus wants us to be. Jesus wants, he desires that everyone who professes faith in Christ to be faithful and true. But more than that, to be faithful and true witnesses. And this has been a theme that we've seen several times in the seven letters to the churches. Let's go all the way back to the very first message or the first church, the church at Ephesus. What did Jesus say to them? You've lost your first love. And we learned there that their first love was that they were no longer fervent witnesses for him. And what did Jesus say to them? Listen, if you don't repent... If you don't turn this ship around, I'm going to come and I'm going to remove your lampstand. If you won't be a witness for me, guess what? You won't be a witness at all. So then he goes on 
And why did Jesus praise the church of Pergamum? Well, he praised them because they had held fast to his name and they did not deny the faith. In other words, they were faithful witnesses despite what they were going through. The church at Sardis had a reputation for being alive and yet they were dead. Why? Because they had forgotten the gospel. Why did Jesus praise the church of Philadelphia? Well, Jesus praised them because he had set before them an open door, and despite the little power that they had, they had kept his word, and they had not denied his name. In other words, despite the odds being stacked against them, what were they? They were faithful, fervent witnesses to Christ. But then we come to the church at Laodicea, and Jesus says in verse 15, I know your works. Now, conspicuous by their absence is any mention of their works. So what do we conclude by that? They didn't have any works worth mentioning. As G.K. Beale said in his commentary, their faith was ineffective. They had a faith, but it didn't accomplish anything. It wasn't at work on a daily basis. So let me give you a, a, my three-point outline, and uh, because I'll forget it as we go along. But first we have his assessment, Jesus' assessment of the church. Then we have Jesus' admonition to the church. And then finally we have Jesus' announcement uh, to the church. So let's start with his assessment of the church. We find that in verses 15 through 17. Look again with me at verses 15 through 17. Jesus says, I know your works. Now, remember, he, he's assessing the condition of the church. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Now, I want to say this because I, I'll probably forget it later on. He's, Jesus is not saying... Uh, you, he, 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 he's not trying to, well, I'll, I'll, I'll do that later. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So again, he has no words to praise for this church, only condemnation. Jesus says you're not hot, you're not cold, you are far worse, you are lukewarm. Now, it's important for us to understand exactly what Jesus means here when he uses these terms to describe their spiritual condition. And in case you're wondering, he is addressing Christians. He wouldn't tell unbelievers you're lukewarm, would he? No, of course not. So he is addressing Christians. He's addressing members of a church. He's addressing those who profess to have faith in Christ. So he, he's talking to them. But they were spiritually apathetic Christians. And I think that's why John Stott so aptly described the condition of the church in the 21st century. We have so many apathetic Christians. Well, just as Jesus drew on the geography of Sardis to make his point to the church in that city, he again draws on the geography of Laodicea to describe to them in most vivid words how he feels about them. He uses a description that they would immediately identify with and they would immediately understand. The city of Laodicea was located on a major trade route. It was a hub for trade. And this favorable location allowed the city to become prosperous. 
And therefore, if the city itself was prosperous, many of the inhabitants of the city were prosperous as well. They became wealthy and uh, they lived a very comfortable lifestyle. The city had plenty of wealth. It was even characterized by a number of what we would call millionaires. So they had plenty of wealth, but you know what they didn't have? They didn't have water. The city of Herapolis was known for its medicinal hot springs, while the city of Colossae had an abundance of crystal clear cold water, and they were all nearby. But the city of Laodicea, they had to bring in water by means of an aqueduct some five or six miles away. And by the time the water reached the city, it was lukewarm. It was neither hot nor cold. It was tepid, and it was nauseating. And because of the chemicals that were found in the unfiltered water, if you were to drink it as it first entered the city, it would make you sick. And you would spit it out of your mouth. So when Jesus says to this church, you're not hot, you're not cold, you're lukewarm, and therefore I'm going to spit you out of my mouth, they knew exactly what he meant. How do you think that hit them? Here's a church that thought that they had everything on the ball. Hey, we're rich, we're prosperous. We've got everything that we need. And Jesus says, you're not rich, you're poor. I pity you. You're wretched. So, what a shock that must have been for them. So when Jesus said to them, you're lukewarm, they would have known exactly what he meant and they would have known that he was not complimenting them. So what Jesus is describing here is a church that has lost his zeal for Christ. The weekly times of worship, they were bland and boring. The atmosphere of the church was one of complete apathy. They had right beliefs, but those beliefs had little to no impact on them and especially on the way that they lived. So they were lukewarm, and Jesus said that he was going to spit them out of his mouth. Now, I don't know about you. If you really stop and think about what Jesus is saying here, it's kind of shocking This is the Savior, the one who died for them, who saved them, says to them, you make me sick. I don't know about you, but that, that, that's, those are crushing words. To hear the one that you profess to love and to give your life to and to serve says to you, you know what? You're just lukewarm. You're apathetic. You make me sick. I just want to spit you out of my mouth. Those are hard words to hear. Well, let me highlight two lessons I think we can learn from what Jesus says here. First, the first lesson is for each one of us to honestly examine ourselves. And I say honestly examine ourselves. The church at Laodicea had an opinion of themselves, but it was wrong. They weren't what they thought they were. They weren't what they were telling themselves they were. 
So here is a call for self-examination. And honestly, be honest with yourself today because Jesus knows the answer. Amen? How would you rate yourself spiritually? Cold? Hot? Or lukewarm? And be honest with yourself. You know, we have professing Christians that drift in and out of here. They show up once a month or once every six weeks or whatever. If they're truly saved, you know what Jesus would say to them? I'd like to spit you out of my mouth. You're lukewarm. You have no appetite for worship. You don't care to be with God's people. Do you dread coming to worship? Do you dread seeing God's people? Is it a chore to read your Bible? Do you find it almost depressing to pray sometimes? We need to examine ourselves, don't we? Again, they had wrongly estimated themselves. Hey, we're rich. Jesus says, no, you're poor. Hey, we prosper. Jesus says, no, you're to be pitied. Hey, we're spiritually strong. Jesus says, no, you're spiritually weak. Second, they became lukewarm Christians because they allowed themselves to be influenced by the culture instead of by Christ. They loved the culture more than they loved Christ. Remember, they were surrounded by riches and wealth. And perhaps many in the church were themselves wealthy. And they had prospered financially, resulting in their prosperity capturing their affections. Christ was no longer the center of their affections. It was their material possessions, their bank accounts, the size of their house, or a myriad of other things. And by the way, these are still problems for Christians today, aren't they? How easy it is for us to overestimate our spiritual condition, to think that we're something that we're really not. That's... that's that's part of the value of communion. You are brought face to face. You have to examine yourselves and say, where am I spiritually? It's so easy to overestimate ourselves. And it's so easy to let the culture become our focus rather than Christ becoming our focus. So we have to be aware of these things. So, how can we avoid falling into this trap? In other words, how can we avoid becoming a lukewarm Christian? Let me give you three things. To avoid the trap of overestimating ourselves, first of all, we must stay in the Scriptures and ask the Holy Spirit to show us accordingly how we are doing in light of God's Word. In other words... You pray as the psalmist did, open my eyes that I may, what, behold wonderful things out of your law. And sometimes those wonderful things show me how unwonderful I am. So we let the scriptures be a mirror for us, a true reflection for us. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And what's it do? It goes right to the heart of our motives. We stay in the scriptures. 
Second, we must make confession of sin a daily, at least daily, if not hourly, priority. See, nothing reveals the condition of your heart and your mind like honest confession. And you should ask the Holy Spirit to help show you your sin because we all have blind spots. And how many times do we fall back on, well, that's just a quirk of my personality or that's just the way that I am? No, that's, that's not acceptable. So we need to daily confess our sins. We need to ask the Lord, show me where I have sinned. Painful? Yes. Necessary? Absolutely. Helpful? Always. Third, allow other Christians to speak to you truthfully and lovingly. And that's what discipleship is all about. Ask your discipleship partner whether or not they see uh, in your life something that is sinful, shouldn't be there. And please don't be offended when they point it out to you. It's for your good, right? So those are some ways I think that we can keep from becoming lukewarm. Um, and, and don't make the mistake that the believers in Laodicea made. They, they interpreted their financial prosperity as a sign of God's blessing. Now, let me be quick to say, that may be true. God does bless his people materially, financially. But listen, don't automatically assume that because you got that pay raise, you're doing everything right and God's pleased with you. Don't make that assumption. That was the assumption they made. They saw their material wealth and prosperity and said, well, this must be God's blessing, and so therefore we must be okay. In fact, in the midst of our material prosperity, we need to take a step back and say, how did I get this? Did I get this through God-honoring means? Or in ways that didn't honor God. So we need to be careful about that. Um, now, why would Jesus say such harsh words to them? I know we live in a, we live in a culture that, you know, you got to be so careful about what you say. And listen, I, I'm not for just beating people about the head and shoulders with, words but there are some times when the truth must be said and sometimes the truth is harsh do you think anybody wants to hear that if they're not a Christian if they don't repent of their sins and turn to Christ that they're going to hell do you think anybody wants to hear that no but what is the most loving thing that I can say to a sinner who's on their way to hell? Hope you make it. No, I warn them. I put up the stop sign. I wave the red flag. I, I do whatever I can in order to get them to see the danger. That's how I love them. See? So how do you know Jesus loved them? Well, he says so. Look at verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. 
So Jesus lets them know, look, I'm saying these things to you because I love you. And the Bible clearly teaches that God does what? That God disciplines his children and he does so in an act of love. So his harshness to them is balanced by his love for them. So Jesus says to the lukewarm believer, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. In other words, Jesus counsels them to buy spiritual riches that comes from the refiner's fire. They would be pure, right? They wouldn't be tainted. They would be pure riches, riches that would endure. Jesus points to himself and says to them, I'm the source of true, true, pure riches of salvation. And then he says, come get white garments for me. Now, why would he say that? Well, another characteristic of Laodicea was that they produced this expensive and so they say luxurious black wool. Now, I've never found wool to be luxurious, but that's beside the point. But they, they were known for their black wool that was worn by the rich and famous. And apparently some in the church had given in to that modern fashion and they wanted the black wool to make their garments with. But Jesus says, you know what? You need to change your clothes. You need to change your clothes. And by doing so, you will let the city know there's something different about you. Because you're not dressed like everybody else. You're not in black. You've received the white garments. The white garments that Jesus gives symbolizes the Christian's justification. The white garments symbolize or are or, or a point of identification for the Christian. In essence, what Jesus is saying to them is live out who you are. Don't be ashamed of who you are. Live out who you are. Jesus says to them, buy from me refined gold. Put on white garments that only I can give and anoint your eyes with salve. Another characteristic of the city of Laodicea was they had a medical school there, and that medical school produced uh, medicinal eye salves. So Jesus says, you need to put this salve on your eyes so that you can once again clearly see, so that you can clearly see who you are and, more importantly, who I am. So we have this, the Lord's assessment of the church. Then in 18 and 19 is the Lord's admonishment to the church. I want to point out at the end of verse 19, Jesus admonishes the church to be zealous and repent. Now, there's a little bit of a play on words here. When Jesus tells them to be zealous, Jesus uses a word that means boiling hot. Boiling hot. He's already said, I don't want you to be cold. I don't want you to be lukewarm. So there's only one option. Well, you, you, we might say, well, he just wants us to be hot. No, the word that he uses is boiling hot. You know, there's a difference between hot water and boiling hot water, isn't there? The purpose of the repentance was to restore them to being boiling hot witnesses for Christ. So as Christians, we must keep this in mind. And this is so painful to say, lukewarmness is not acceptable to our Savior. Lukewarmness is not acceptable to our Savior. Lukewarmness is not acceptable to our Savior. Apathy is not acceptable to our Savior. Lukewarmness makes Jesus sick. And it makes him want to spit us out of his mouth. 
I mean, those, those are some, again, those are, those are crushing words. I mean, how, how would we identify ourselves? So we have the assessment, and then we have the admonishment. Then finally, we have the Lord's announcement to the church. Look at verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Now, how many times have you heard that used in some form of evangelistic presentation? It is not an evangelistic presentation. Say, how can you be so sure? Context, context, context. And in what context is this said? In what context does Jesus say this? Does Jesus say it to uh, unbelievers? No, he says it to the church. So this is an announcement to the church that if they will be zealous and repent, here's what's going to happen. Look at verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Now, Notice there, there's, there's responsibility on our part. Part of the responsibility is to listen. Are we listening? Another part of the responsibility is what? Open the door. Open the door. This is an announcement by the Lord of the church to the church that if they will be zealous and repent, he will come into them, and together they will engage in fellowship and communion. Say, so, well, what's the danger if we use this as an evangelistic appeal? Well, here's the danger it loses all significance for the believer. This is for you, believer. This is Jesus saying to you, I want to come in. And I want to have fellowship with you. I want to have ongoing communion with you. I want to spend time with you. Rather than spitting you out of my mouth, I want to have dinner with you. So we don't want to make it an evangelistic appeal at this point because that's not what it is. And it, it takes away all the real significance and power for us as believers. See, Jesus loves those who are united to him by faith. And he wants to spend time with those who are united by uh, with him by faith. He wants to have fellowship with us, ongoing communion with us. He wants to encourage us. He wants to comfort us. He wants to strengthen us. He wants to cheer us. He wants to give us joy. You know what Jesus is saying here? I'm always here for you. Always. James Montgomery Boyce explains that Christ is knocking at the closed hearts of those who are his but have turned their backs on him and shut him out of their complacent, self-satisfied, worldly Christian lives. Knocking Christ is an image not of Jesus calling unbelievers to give their hearts to him, but of calling drifting, worldly believers to sincere repentance and renewal. Donald Gray Barnhouse wrote this, The call of the Lord to Laodicea then is to come back to the word of God. The poverty of this church lies in the fact that the word of God is not given its proper place. John Stott, describes Christ's calling as to surrender without conditions to his lordship. It is to seek his will in his word and promptly to obey it. It's not just attending religious services on Sunday or even every day. It's putting him first and seeking his pleasure in every department of life, public and private. 
And I know, I know, I know what's probably going through your head. If I become boiling hot for Christ, I'll be some kind of a nut. You picture yourself staying on the street corner, preaching. Turn or burn. No, that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about this is the focus of our lives. This is what drives us. This is a, what motivates us. This is our priority. Anything other than that is lukewarmness. And could it be that's why we don't have a more satisfying relationship with the Lord? We've relegated him to the fringes. We give him the time if we can make the time. But he's not the priority for us. Oh, we talk a good game. We know all the Christian buzzwords. We can sit down and talk with anybody. But like G.K. Beale said, it's an ineffective faith. So, one last question. How do we remain boiling hot for Christ? To say it another way, how do we keep from slipping back into lukewarmness? Well, again, the answer is in verse 20. We keep the door open to Christ and we meet with him on an ongoing basis for fellowship and communion. That's how we keep from slipping back into lukewarmness, from becoming apathetic. So what does it mean, hot or cold or lukewarm? Well, it's really describing three spiritual conditions. Those who are cold are the spiritually dead. I don't mean to be morbid here, but a dead body is cold to the touch. So Jesus is saying, hey, there's a sense in which I, I wish you were, you were cold because then I would minister to you in a different way. I heard John MacArthur say years and years and years ago, showing both his and my age, that religious people are the hardest people to reach with the gospel. And so Jesus is saying, I wish you weren't religious at all. <laughs> you know? Because then we know how to deal with you. So if that describes you this morning as spiritually cold, then Jesus invites you to come to him for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of eternal life. Uh, probably more likely is uh, you're, you may be spiritually lukewarm. And I say this with love and I say it with great pain. That condition is not acceptable to Jesus. We do him a disservice. We dishonor him if we admit that we're lukewarm, but we're not willing to do anything about it. And the Lord's advice to those who are cold, uh, repent. The Lord's advice to those who are lukewarm, repent. And I, I trust that you're boiling hot for Christ. And if you are, 
Stay that way. Spend time each day and every day with your Lord and Savior and continue to enjoy the inestimable privilege of fellowship and communion with Jesus.